to fear the fro. Shot blocked by Mobley. Holy Mobley. Donovan Mitchell is eight for eight from downtown. There he is, Garland. Hit it from Euclid. Lob to Allen. Pow. Oh, that was gorgeous. A Cleveland Cavalier podcast. What do we need to add? What do we need to give the coach? The game has come down to space and opportunity. We address that. Hosted by the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Yeah, his name is Bob Schmidt. Bob, Bob Schmidt. Schmidt. Spectacular talent. That guy is a legend. Got at the buzzer! Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am your host, Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio on this, an evening where the Cavaliers notch their 10th victory in their last 13 tries, keeping them well in the hunt for the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference in the NBA playoffs within, well... Really, it kind of depends on the outcome tonight. The Knicks already fell to the Orlando Magic, making them slide to seventh as it currently sits. But two games are in progress, and both of them could go either direction. The Pacers are trailing to the Jazz as I speak, and it's a dead heat in the middle of the fourth quarter between Miami and the Brooklyn Nets. No pun intended there. So the Cavaliers doing very well for themselves, but heading into an exceptionally difficult stretch of games in which we will see the Milwaukee Bucks three times in the next five games. And then towards the end of the month, things lighten up. But let's get into tonight because it could have gone one of two ways. The Cavaliers came out of the gate swinging and looked fantastic at different points, nearly doubling up the Chicago Bulls, a 40-point first quarter to just 21 for the Bulls. Uh, However, that quickly uh, reversing course as the Cavaliers in the second and third combined accumulated 40 points. Of particular note, the third quarter was disastrous. Two huge unanswered runs. First, a 10-0 run. For a second, I thought, Sam hits a triple. Okay, maybe we're going to get back into it. Nope. Just a momentary pause from a third quarter bludgeoning because they would rip off the next 11 points to close out the quarter at the free throw stripe, trailing by just three points. In a game in which we had led by 21 points and hung a 40-piece on them in the first quarter. From that six-minute mark in the third, they would go on a 25-3 run that would put them back in the lead because they scored the first four of the fourth. How the fuck did we arrive here? Now, all of the momentum was with Chicago heading into that fourth quarter. It started to seem like, okay, Kobe White's getting some whistles. We're on the wrong end of some 50-50 calls, be it Sam Merrill trying to take a charge and turning into a block, the Nyang call that we challenged. Now, I saw that Nyang call and I thought, okay, I can feel what Mike Brown was feeling the other night. I don't know what you could say. If you're going to call guys for the arm down low, that's fine. But Yang didn't really even do that, and he certainly didn't extend anything. Instead, the refs said this. The defender does not jump vertically and makes illegal contact with the offensive player with .4 on the game clock. Oh, bullshit. Not only was Yang jumping backwards, but he was as vertical as vertical can be. And I will take that to my grave. I'm pretty sure nobody had much of an issue with Sam Merrill getting a blocking call there. It did seem like he might have leaned just slightly to his left, but the Nyang one was tough. In part because I was desperately hoping for that run to end from the Chicago Bulls, and it just wasn't happening. It felt like a boxing match where right at the end of the round, we get knocked to the canvas, and you just want to stay there. Please, for the love of God, ring the bell. Let us gather ourselves and try to turn around whatever the hell is happening here. We have given up a 21-point lead in just over eight minutes. 
if I told you that what would turn the game around was a two-big lineup for the Bulls that would feature Vooch alongside Andre Drummond, I wouldn't have believed it. But that was, in fact, what happened. The Bulls subbed Drummond in with six minutes left in the third and the Cavaliers up by 21 points. And for the remainder of the third, Drummond and Vooch played alongside one another and cooked. It fucked the Cavs up. There's no way around it. Drummond and Vooch together all of a sudden started to mitigate a lot of the damage that was being done by the Cavaliers' second chance points. Now, not to be lost in all of this, I know that I'm talking a lot about blowing a lead, but there was definitely positives, one of which included Jared Allen. He had five offensive rebounds tonight that led to 13 points. Five offensive rebounds, five converted shots, a triple from Merrill, Yang, and Mitchell, a cleanup that he did on his own, and a dump off to Donovan Mitchell streaking down the lane that he converted at the rim. That level of efficiency, 13 points directly from five offensive rebounds by Jared Allen is unbelievable. And yet again, he runs his streak to nine straight double-doubles, a career best. For Jared Allen, a big night from him in which he filled the box score again. Now, his scoring these last two games has taken a step back, but he only took five shots tonight. He was four for five from the floor for 10 points, 14 boards, and four stocks, a couple steals, a couple of blocks. Great night for Jared Allen. Two other guys who need to be mentioned, though. After the Cavaliers found themselves trailing. They ripped off 10 unanswered points. The first of those, one of the three fourth quarter triples that Karis LeVert would put in. Six combined threes from Dean Wade and Karis LeVert in that fourth quarter was magical. To go along with Sam Merrill, defensive star. We got a steal on Kobe White near the half-court circle from Sam Merrill. He pilfered it after being on the wrong end of that block charge debatable call and took it to the rim for a layup. That was a big bucket. Donovan Mitchell slicing through the team for free throws and and ones en route to 34 points from him, eight of which would come at the stripe. The Cavaliers, an impeccable 11 for 11. I think we spoke about that already. The game was essentially over when Dean Wade exploded, but good God, did it feel good to watch a guy who, after making his first three with nearly eight minutes left in the first quarter, proceeded to miss his next five. The fourth quarter rolls around, and Dean knocks down back-to-back-to-back triples to hammer multiple nails in the coffin. Now, yes, when he hit them, they weren't really high-leverage threes. The Cavaliers were already up by 10 points. Mainly, the lead got blown back open due to Karras and Donovan Mitchell. But Dean had a say in everything because six three-pointers... That accounts for 18 points in that final 29-11 to run. Live by the three, die by the three, and the Cavaliers, they were resurrected by the three late in the fourth quarter. And I'll say this about Dean Wade. You're going to hear this conversation that we had. Now, I taped this second half of the pod before the first half, and coming into the evening, Dean Wade had made one three-pointer in his last six games, something to that effect. It wasn't just that he wasn't making them. It's that he's barely been taking them. So even when he was one of seven from outside the arc, my feeling was, hell, at least he's putting them up. The shots aren't always going to fall, but I liked that he was showing less hesitation. And I am so happy for Dean Wade that he shot his way through it to the other end of this box score where you look at this game and you say, okay, yeah, It's not the Pelicans game, but 
It came with a victory, and he shot his way through it. He hasn't put up 10 three-point attempts since the last time we faced the Chicago Bulls. For whatever reason, against this team, he thinks he's Sam Merrill. Now, with tonight's victory, the Cavaliers have won six consecutive games against the Bulls. They have not lost in the last two seasons. And Jared Allen, I think I alluded to, with his ninth double-double, he is just two away from the team record for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Elmore Smith, Andre Drummond, both guys have recorded 11 consecutive double-doubles. So, I want this more than I probably should for a meaningless accomplishment. Other thing we should talk about here is Zach Levine. I know he's been in all sorts of trade rumors. He is somebody the Bulls desperately want to get away from. His contract is crippling. His play is a net negative, and that was reinforced tonight. That 21-3 run came with Zach Levine off the floor. When he came back into the game in the fourth quarter, immediately had a turnover. Now, there's plenty of games where teams come out flat, you turn to the bench, and you get a much more inspired performance. But to see the guards on the floor during that run, being Iodasunmu, Caruso, and Kobe White, both DeMar and Levine were not really part of that comeback, and that's certainly not encouraging for two guys who take up as much of the salary cap as those players do. But that Chicago's crossed a bear, and the Cavaliers have now won five straight games. Now, historically, I don't know what the stats are on this. However, I'm sure it's out there. As of now, to have four Cavaliers knock down four triples is very impressive. And Yang, right there, just needed one more. Three Cavaliers took double-digit three-point attempts. So we were putting them up tonight at a record pace, doing work on the glass. 13 offensive rebounds for the Cavaliers in excellent outing. And to win the turnover battle, all those things pointed to the outcome which we saw tonight, despite it being thrown into question. Now, one final thing I think bears mentioning. Sam Merrill got some very high-leverage minutes in this game. Yes, on the evening he finished around the 20-minute mark, he logged nine second-half minutes. But Sam checked in at the beginning of that gigantic third-quarter collapse by the Cavaliers. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, that's not a good sign. You mean he was in there all the way through the Cavs giving up a 21-point lead? Yes, he was. Every single minute. But on the other side of that, Sam played through it. JB let him play through it. And then he was there on the floor every moment of that 10-0 run in the fourth quarter, which blew it back open. This isn't meant to say that Sam played a flawless game, but I think what we're seeing is JB clearly sees the value. If there's a game you could turn to, it would be easy to yank the young, less experienced guy out as we're getting our asses handed to us by a two-big lineup from the Bulls and go away from it and say, oh, you know what? We have to answer with size. He didn't do that. He left Merrill on the floor, and he let Merrill play through it, and he let him continue to play through it even after he found himself on the wrong end of that defensive possession where he tried to take a charge on Kobe White and where we fell behind the Chicago Bulls. That was a dead ball. JB could have said, enough, yank him right there. He didn't. He was in there for that 10-0 run, and then he went to the bench right before Dean Wade went to work. That is a good sign. If you're a Merrill supporter, or even if you've had criticisms about how JB has a short leash with these less experienced guys, this is a step in the right direction. JB allowed Sam to play through a colossal collapse and see himself through to the other side, along with the Cavalier team around him. Now, if we had lost this game, JB would take bullets for this. 
But some of the loudest critiques of JB's decisions have come due to inconsistent usage of the young guys. Sam seems to be breaking out of that. Sam seems to be treated the same way as some of the veterans now. Hopefully that sustains when we become fully healthy. But for those of you who want JB to ride momentum more, to be less rigid in turning to the guys who he's typically trusted in these leverage situations in the past, you got exactly what you wanted. The calls for take more threes, they've been answered. The calls for movement in the offense, they've been answered. And the calls for don't have such a short leash with the young dudes, they were answered. I hope to God that this continues even even when we get back to full strength. And Darius is seemingly close based on the fact that he tweeted some stuff. He was seen taking shots beforehand. He's at the front end of that timetable of the four to six weeks. So he could be back at any point. But the pressure is on him. JB has taken some pressure off of him. Darius has heaped some pressure upon him, along with Mobley. But Darius is going to be the first one back. So God forbid he gets dropped into a very difficult part of the schedule and we have some adversity and we see the ball movement suffer or the role guys start to disappear because there's going to be people who don't give a shit about nuance or context and just say, well, what's different? But regardless, feel good that the Cavaliers gutted this out in the fourth quarter. Feel good that when we went stone cold in the second and third quarters, Donovan Mitchell helped push us through. He had a perfect third quarter, by the way. Lost in that gigantic collapse towards the end of the third quarter is that Donovan scored double digits and didn't miss a shot. This is a Bulls team, which they said during the broadcast, had come back from double-digit deficits seven times. That's third in the league, which is very impressive when you consider how bad the Chicago Bulls team is. But it wasn't without risk playing Sam Merrill. Not only should that help Sam in the future, but some of those moments, the steal on Kobe White, the transition layup, those go a long way to building confidence just in him. He was allowed to play through it. He made some positive contributions at the end of his minutes tonight. Dean Wade was allowed to play through it. He knocked down three back-to-back-to-back triples to end his evening. Now we await the Milwaukee Bucks, who will come to Cleveland for a Wednesday showdown with our Cavaliers. And credit to Mike Brown, former Cavalier coach, doing some lobbying with the officials that hopefully will benefit us. In a game between his Sacramento Kings and the Milwaukee Bucks, there were some questionable foul calls, including a late foul that turned into three free throws from Dame Lillard. Mike lost his mind and got ejected from that game. And in the post-game press conference, he pulled out a laptop to illustrate exactly what it was he took issue with. Here are some of his comments. If, if the rule is you got to go vertical, both hands up, how can you give, how can you take away two free throws when a guy got his forearm down here? Now, Mike went a bit uh, beyond what most coaches would. He pulled out a laptop in the post-game press conference to show the plays he took issue with. But there was two specific things he didn't like. One was a situation where Dame got three free throws on a, a shot that he probably wasn't even trying to put up, but he felt the defender's hand on his hip and went up and got rewarded for it. And then on the opposite end of the court, De'Aaron Fox got you know half mugged by campaign, and he didn't get a call for it. Nearly fell over. So he took issue with that. But the more interesting one to me regarded verticality and the idea that Brooke Lopez is allowed to put his forearm on a guy's body down low when he only has one arm extended vertically. Mike's contention is that verticality has always been allowed only if players have both their arms extended straight up. 
He goes on to say that Domas has got several fouls called on him for the exact thing that they overturned when they looked at the Brook Lopez foul. My hope would be that they'll be a little more judicious in allowing the physicality that guys like Brook Lopez and Giannis bring when attempting to play defense. Our bigs are very good at verticality, but in a scenario where we play these guys three games in five games, three out of the next five games against the Bucks, certainly any attention that can be drawn to the way that they're allowed to play physically, but anyone who touches Giannis sends him to the free throw line, certainly hopefully would benefit us. Now, I'm not confident of that, but I certainly don't think it hurts that this is coming on the heels of another refing debacle and one that was a fairly high-profile one due to the post-game antics of Mike Brown and his laptop. Raymond, would you bring the computer up here, please? (laughs) Steve Kerr not missing the opportunity to to bust Mike's balls, his former assistant. So, uh, since we are now, I don't know, 15 minutes later in this podcast, we now have resolution. Miami does defeat Brooklyn in overtime, and it looks all but certain that the Indiana Pacers are going to fall to the Utah Jazz tonight, a team that is surging behind the incredible play of Colin Sexton. If you haven't taken note, do take note, because Colin Sexton, in his last 13 games, is averaging 20 points and five assists on absurd splits, 52-39-91 splits. And more importantly, than the individual statistical achievements. Tonight will mark six consecutive victories, and it will mark 12 in 14 games for the Utah Jazz, the hottest team in the NBA alongside of our Cavalier brethren. They have been playing exceptionally well. So, we win one, we lose one. Cavs have a five-game winning streak. The Miami Heat have now rung up three victories in a row, and the Pacers and the Knicks, they have lost ground. So that'll put a bow on it for the post-game reaction portion, but there's a whole second half of this podcast, one that I taped before the game. Keep that in mind. As we're talking about Dean Wade, none of what transpired in the fourth quarter is reflected in this conversation. Okay, to pivot, we go to CavsPod.com. That is the website of the Fear the Fro podcast, and recently I implemented a new feature on the website. There is a button, a big, fat button on the web version, on the mobile version, It's a fat little bastard. You fat piece of shit. And what happens is when you click that button, it allows you to record what's essentially a digital voicemail. But the nice part about it, at least from me, an audio person, it gives me some audio of you speaking to me that I can include in this podcast. And I appreciate the early adopters. We go to one of those right now. Please leave a message. And now a message recorded and submitted to me at CavsPod.com. Today's message comes from Anna. Anna? Hey, Bob. What do you think of this upcoming trade deadline? Should Cavs make some moves or stay put? I kind of like the idea of getting Matisse Thibel. You know, he's a solid defender, decent enough shooter. Maybe trade him for Dean Wade. What do you think? Love the pod, by the way. Keep it up. I will keep it up, Anna. Thank you very much for participating Let's speak about this uh, this trade situation. As we get closer to February 8th, it's natural. We're going to hear iterations of Cavaliers put into trade talks. Dean Wade is a logical person because he has a modest salary. Very modest if you compare him to relatively equally productive players around the league. And also, I think he's a guy that most of us feel at full strength that will not be utilized heavily by us. And perhaps 
will allow us to address some other needs in the rotation. Here's the problem I see, though. Uh, let's speak specifically to the player that you brought up, Matisse Thibel. Now, I like him. Think he's a very good defender. Think he's a little bit longer than a Coro. Definitely defensively a high-end defender in this league. And, and I don't think that we should blow past the fact that over the last two seasons, since joining the Portland Trailblazers, he has increased both his volume from outside the arc and his efficiency. He is now creeping into the high 30%, and he's doing it on over three and a half attempts per game. Nobody would necessarily call him a marksman, but he has crept into a respectable catch-and-shoot option, specifically from the corners especially. I think you could make the comparison that his archetype is somewhat similar to the Isaac Okoro we've seen over his time with the Cavs. Now, I think Okoro has more floor game, but again, this is a relevant conversation to have as we address what's going to be happening with Okoro in the future. At the moment, I think they're a bit redundant. However, let's just talk about Matisse Thibel versus Dean Wade. Now, do I think Dean Wade is having a bad spell? Absolutely. After that 20-point outing with the Pelicans in five of the six games leading up to that Paris-Brooklyn Nets outing, he did not make a single three-pointer. He's still logging roughly 20 minutes a game. But here's the things that Dean has going in his favor. One is he fills a role for our team that the Cavaliers and basically every Cavalier fan wants filled. He can guard threes and fours. He can rebound and defend serviceably, and he can knock down threes serviceably. Is he elite at any of those things? No. But is he the best that we have in a front court that is relatively thin and is currently beleaguered by injuries? Absolutely. Secondarily to that is his contract. On nights where JB goes away from Dean Wade, there's very little criticism because this is a guy who makes $6 million a season. And $6 million comes with minimal expectations. It's just a louder version of the same argument I'd make for the George Nyang critics. $8 million a season? You should expect some peaks and valleys. A guy like Thibel is creeping into that territory of contract where he has to be every night impactful. And he has to justify his salary with legitimate guaranteed minutes. In a Cavaliers rotation where Dean Wade is swapped for Matisse Thibel, is he guaranteed to get significant run? Are they going to put him on the floor alongside an Isaac Okoro? I think we can all agree he would not take Struess or Levert's minutes, so would he unseat a George Nyang? I get people being unhappy when they see Dean Wade log 20, 25 minutes and not score a point. I certainly wish he'd take a few more threes, but he's not really there for that. He's there because he can guard bigger than he is, and we got a bunch of wings who we don't necessarily want doing that. Now let's pivot to a situation where I think a Thibel would make more sense. Now let's say the Cavs executed that hypothetical trade that you alluded to. Dean Wade and some filler for Matisse Thibel. To me, that would signal the end of the Isaac Okoro era with the Cavs, or a likely sign-and-trade situation is on the horizon. And what I'm about to say now, it's not specific to Thibel. It would really apply in any scenario where we traded for a high-end defensive wing. I think we would need to be open to the possibility that it's a precursor to Isaac moving on. In the last two weeks, I've seen a lot more speculation of trades involving Isaac Okoro, coming from places that I consider reputable and people who have a general tone of the front office, Chris Fedor specifically. And a lot of stuff has been said that Donovan Mitchell is off the table, but Isaac Okoro is someone who could be moved for the right piece. To me, that suggests they might be looking to move a wing 
to try to bring back a more conventional big man defender who can space the floor. A better version of what we have in Dean. A role that we've talked about to death here. But even to entertain the idea of moving someone as young as Okoro, who's seemingly as well-liked as he is amongst his teammates, that suggests to me that contract stuff may be a factor here. There may be a chasm between the expectations from Okoro's people of what a next contract would look like and what the Cavaliers would hope to retain a player of his value for. He did not extend during the rookie extension period, so for whatever reason, he didn't like what was on the table, and he bet on himself, which, more power to him, I think he's having a solid season. I think the more relevant question is, can the Cavaliers afford to pay him what he might command from another team for the role which he has on this Cavalier roster that is filled with some solid wing options in Struess and Levert, etc.? Maybe the Cavaliers are staring down the barrel of a contractual gun where he's looking for similar money to what we just doled out to Karis LeVert and Max Struess. The whole mid-level, slightly above mid-level. And if that's the case, I'm certainly not saying a, a guy as young as him couldn't fulfill a return on investment at that figure. But I do think the Cavaliers are in a precarious position and that they have four guys on the roster who are going to command max salaries or in Jared Allen's case, sizable, sizable money on their next contract. So they have to be more diligent than other NBA teams in not overpaying for roles that don't justify the money. It's not that Okoro's not a good player, but if he's asking for, say, the full mid-level contract money, can the Cavaliers justify paying him that for the role he serves on this roster with the other solid wing options we have on this roster? Now, nobody wants to lose Isaac Okoro's point-of-attack defense. But can you afford to pay nearly a full mid-level exception price for primarily that? And I'm not making that assessment one way or another, but I do think it's a relevant question the Cavaliers have to ask of every single role player that they sign. It's the same argument that they'll be faced with when Jared Allen's next contract is due. Now, I think Jared Allen is proving he is a star center, but in a fully healthy Cavalier construction, we have forced him into a bit of a role player situation. An elite role player, but a bit of a role player situation. Deferential to Mobley, deferential to Donovan Mitchell, deferential to Darius Garland. We allow him to thrive in the areas which he can impact without the ball. We don't take full advantage of all the things which he can do with the ball. And that's understandable. We've seen what he can do in a situation where he's fully unleashed, but the reality is the construction of this team simply may not allow for that alongside Evan Mobley. So those are hard internal decisions that have to be made. And with the pressure created by outside offers, they become even harder. So in that scenario, if we make a trade for a long-wing defender who's locked in for less money over longer years than Isaac Okoro, to me, that's a sign that we're preparing to shift some of the money that Isaac Okoro will make in the future back into our pockets in exchange for 75, 80% of what we think Okoro presently gives us at a better contractual value. Now that brings us to kind of a philosophical discussion about how to best manage the Cavaliers ever increasing cap. I should say the Cavaliers ever increasing payroll. Due to our construction, we will have mega, mega bucks tied to four guys. And I got into a bit of a conversation about this with a Pelicans uh, podcaster and Substack writer, a guy named Shamit Dua. And he is lusting for Jared Allen trades that would see the fro land with the Pelicans. 
Now, I didn't like any of the constructions that he proposed, but in a, what I would call a civil back and forth, his inference was that, well, you know what? The Cavaliers are going to have to make tough decisions when Mobley signs that next contract. There's a group of NBA fans who are just sort of waiting in the wings, hoping that the Cavaliers have to fire sale one of their talented players due to roster and contract redundancy. A very similar situation to what's happening with a Dorian Finney-Smith now. People look at Brooklyn, they see a surplus of long, rangy wings, and they think that they're going to get one of the guys, Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney-Smith, Cam Johnson, for 10 cents on the dollar. It's a very frustrating experience when you're on this end of those proposals for Jared Allen or when you're on the Nets end of the proposals being put out for those role guys. You want more? You know the player is better than what's being offered for them, but the outside world doesn't believe you're going to get more and that you should take what we're offering and like it. It sucks, but they see your cap sheet. They know the talent those players possess and the money that that it would dictate on an open market, and that's a very real thing. I think right now everybody fixates on Jared Allen, and that's in part because our fan base has slandered him so mightily that people think we're unhappy with him, but also because of his contract. He makes $20 million a year, which is a contract that can slot into a lot of trade machine proposals. It's an average starter or even an elite bench player in the case of Josh Hart. This past summer, two contracts were handed out with $20 million averages, basically. One was Jakob Pertl, who got a four for 80, and the other was Josh Hart, who extended at four for 81. Jared Allen is clearly better than both those players. Now, Dave Ramsey would punch me in the face for saying what I'm about to say, but Jared Allen is well worth every cent of that $20 million being spent. Rice and beans, beans and rice. He has none of the red flags that usually get people shopped. He's not on a bad deal. He's not a bad player. He's not old. But Allen being in all these trade proposals is entirely because of the context of our team. Just like I said, you have to look at a Coro versus a Thibel and decide is the disparity in money worth the better player in a Coro? The same thing can be said about paying big money to both Mobley and Allen and then asking them, on a day-to-day basis to provide 60-70% of what they're capable of fully unleashed. Now, I personally am of the belief that we don't have a ton of front court depth and that the redundancies we do have with Evan and Mobley, excuse me, Allen and Mobley, are necessary because rarely is this team fully healthy. But when these bigger, huge money contracts have to be signed, the conversation is going to be at an all-time high. And it's not just going to be with Mobley and Allen. The focus is going to shift to the backcourt, too. So that's why people will keep pining for Allen, because they're going to say they should move him now before somebody just gives him a massive offer in unrestricted free agency that the Cavaliers just simply can't match because it hurdles them into the second apron, so he walks away for nothing. But here's what I would say that I'm getting ahead of this now, because it's going to ramp up. It hasn't really happened yet in the discourse, but it will, and it probably should. We're on the tail end of the Allen disparagement era, where people took that Nick series, looked at the $20 million a year he was making, and crushed him. But people are going to turn their focus on other Cavaliers as they get on huge money deals. Once Mobley's on a max, the expectations and standard he's held to will be vastly higher. Once Okoro's on a second deal, patience will be out the window. And Darius Garland, with all the injury issues and the dings and bruises and games he's missed, the more that happens, the more people are going to start taking shots at him. 
We are approaching a time where people are going to have to confront what I think is a very reasonable question. Should our focus be so much on why Allen isn't the retainable asset when he appears to be the only one of the core four who will not command a max salary? Or should we be talking about what would we recoup in a situation where we moved one of the higher profile pieces? Who, while perhaps better players than Allen, could provide more cap relief and probably recoup more on the trade market? Does it make sense to commit over $60 million a year to Donovan Mitchell and have Darius Garland on a full max when I think many of us probably feel like we don't get the same level of impact from Darius Garland playing in this two-guard construction as we did during his breakout season. This isn't an apples-to-apples comparison because Jared Allen's apple costs us $20 million. Jared Allen's next apple might cost us $25 million. Hell, maybe even $30 million. But Donovan Mitchell's next apple will cost $60 million. We're looking at a $300 million extension if he were to sign that with the Cavaliers. Somewhere between 260 and 300. Does it make sense to have a backcourt where two guys combine for over $100 million of your salary cap, but at times it feels like you don't get the maximum version of either player because they're coexisting? The second consideration is, of course... Who's actually going to recoup you the most if and when you have to make them available in trades? Right now, Jared Allen doesn't seem to be bringing back any elite-level package. The New Orleans hypothetical I alluded to before, it didn't include Trey Murphy, who is somebody that I would absolutely be interested in. It was talking about their second-level wings, the more limited guys, the Dysons, the Herb Jones, both solid players, but not somebody I would ever give up Allen for as the linchpin of the deal. Now, I think with the other Cavs, especially Mobley right now on a rookie contract. Now, none of this is me saying trade any of these guys. But this is a podcast. We're talking hypotheticals. I'm answering a question, sort of. Not really, Anna. I'm sorry. I got off on a tangent, but hopefully this isn't totally useless to you. The main takeaway I'm trying to drive home here, though, this is all me saying that you can't look at guys in terms of talent independent of contracts or independent of control mechanisms, like restricted free agency. That was my point in the Matisse Thibel versus Isaac Okoro or Dean Wade situation. It just is a conversation which far fewer people want to have because who gives a fuck about the bench? But with the stars, it's going to become a conversation that we have to have with a lot more nuance and a lot more consideration to the return on investment we're getting from every one of those players in the core four. So just to circle back and put a bow on this whole thing, do I want to trade Dean? It would depend on what's coming back. However, I think like many people in this Cavs fan sphere, Cavs fan sphere, say that three times fast, you bitch. You bitch. I would agree that the guys most likely to be shopped are probably Dean because his contract's good. Somebody might actually want him. Ty Jerome. The sad thing is I would just want a better version of what Dean's providing in those situations. So if that's going to happen, if you can trade a worse player for a better player, it's usually because of one of two reasons. His contract is just much more beneficial. 
in Dean's case, he has that going in his favor for almost everybody in the NBA. Or two, you're bundling draft assets with it. And that's a situation I think you need to look at on a case-by-case basis. But for a guy who's filling role 9 through 12 in terms of where they are in the rotation on this roster, the Cavaliers need to think long and hard about how much they're going to give up in addition to just the players they ship out. Now, some ancillary benefits of any situation where we find ourselves bundling a a Jones or a Ty Jerome or a Dean Wade is that hopefully it would move guys up the pecking order. And of course, I'm speaking specifically about Imani Bates here, uh, but we're also a pretty injury riddled team. So I would not be shocked to see the Cavaliers not make a consolidation move unless it's a significant improvement in talent. Now, a team I'm super interested to see what they pan do. Pan Pizza is Domino's best-kept secret. Shut up, it's Pan Pizza. It's handmade with fresh, never-frozen dough. Okay, this is what I hate about ESPN.com, by the way. These stupid ads. I have them silenced, but you give it 20 seconds, and they... Oh, fuck these guys. At least it wasn't a targeted Whitlock ad. You know, I'm not trying to get balls deep in someone. I just eat too much pizza, okay? So fuck you. My wife is pregnant. You fat piece of shit. That's meant for me, not her, okay? I just... All right. I need to just stop this podcast. Thank you to everybody who's listened to the Fear the Fro podcast and get in on the Talk to Bob action at CavsPod.com. It's exceptionally easy, and I am immensely grateful. Oh, and by the way, you guys stepped the hell up when it came to reviews after the last podcast. Some serious movement on both Spotify and Apple in terms of five-star reviews and ratings, and I'm immensely grateful. You're all fantastic, and every single review An angel gets its wings. A foul-mouthed, cavalier, loving angel. Till the next Fear the Fro podcast, I am Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.